Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast. As we record this, we're looking at events around the world in Ukraine, where Russia has invaded and is currently setting about the wholesale destruction of cities leading to an unprecedented refugee crisis in its attempt to take over the country and eliminate its democratically elected government. Against that backdrop, I think anything that we try to say on this podcast or any other seems to pale perhaps into insignificance. But I think it's important to note that opposition as we study it as an expression of freedom of people politically to express a dissenting view is one of the bedrocks of any free society. And as well as the horrors that we're seeing of Russian aggression in Ukraine, it's also worth mentioning that at the moment the Russian state is cracking down as never before on dissent. Uh, I say as never before. Um, Some who have spoken from Moscow uh, in recent days have said that those with long memories will remember such restrictions from the darkest days of the Soviet Union. It is a sobering reminder that we too often take opposition in the UK and elsewhere for granted, and we shouldn't. We should value the fact that we have a choice of our political leaders and that when we choose to oppose, we can go and campaign against them, we can demonstrate on the streets, and ultimately we can throw the government out and have a new government, and that that transition is peaceful and that there is no resort to violence. That has been a long evolution from our political system of the past, when recourse was always to military action. We think of the War of the Roses, we think of the English Civil War. British history, like the history of many countries, is littered with those kind of violent uprisings. But I think today we've all been shocked to see the idea that those who simply wish to live under the government that they choose should be facing that kind of aggression. We will be returning to this topic uh, in the next few weeks uh, to look at both Ukraine and also at Russia. Um, But I think for the moment, I just want to say that our thoughts uh, are with the people of Ukraine at this time. So with that sobering introduction, um, it's time to get on with um, this edition of the podcast. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Anthony Broxton, who is a Labour historian and somebody who had the dubious honour of uh, being taught by me at King's College London when he was uh, doing his MA um, on uh, contemporary British political history uh, a few years ago. And Anthony has since... Uh, developed quite a cult following, really. Um, he set up a uh, blog and a Twitter account called Tides of History, looking at the history of the Labour Party. Um, and one of the things that particularly struck me was a blog that he wrote uh, referencing um, a book about Labour mythology. And this was something which I touched upon in some of the lectures that I uh, I gave uh, at King's um, about the history of the Labour Party, where Uh, I put forward the view that, more perhaps than some of the other parties, Labour has its heroes, villains uh, and uh, mythology. Um, So that struck a chord with me, um, and I thought I would uh, ask Anthony to come on the podcast and uh, speak a bit about that, um, and uh, to talk a little bit more about the project, Tides of History, that he's been uh, working on. So I began by asking him um, how it was that he got started with that project. Um, I suppose it came from my own background as a student. When I first started being interested in politics, being interested in the Labour Party, there wasn't a lot of resources out there in one place where you could find out about the history of the party. There's obviously great books that have been written. I think of, you know, Andrew Thorpe's History of the Labour Party, um, Martin Pugh's another one. But they're very, very focused on uh, the rich detail of the structures of the party and there's not much about the character of the people and and the kind of events that shape the party so when i set up ties of history initially as a blog and a kind of social media platform it was to try and elevate those 
stories of the parties, the mythologies, why it loses, why it wins, and try and get behind um, some of the social context to Labour Party's performance beyond just the intra-party party warfare uh, that, it, that it can often be presented as. And that was where it began. It just began as a kind of like, on this day, this thing happened, and we built up a kind of following doing that. And then it turned into more of a kind of um, base for different ideas, different contributors, different people um, wanting to write about their own aspects of labor history they were interested in. And it was a good place to bring in young, young writers, give them a chance to write and give them a bit of a platform. So yeah, it's grown from strength to strength and yeah, hopefully gonna do some more things in the future, webinars, podcasts, potentially, all centered around labor history, essentially. And one of the things that you've written about quite a lot is the um, the strength of mythology and, um, and and Labour's sense of its own history. Um, given how important all of that is, is it surprising to you that that Labour history is not something that is is more um, focused on by people in um, in sort of in, in Labour circles? Do you think? I think the mythology one is is certainly one that is growing as a kind of specialism. Um, in terms of looking at the party's past. And that's where Tides of History's tried to join some of that conversation. Particularly, I think, in the last, in the Corbyn years in particular, there was a lot of debate between different Labour factions about what happened in the 1980s, what happened in the 1990s, both sides taking a different view. And there was at times a need to kind of get beyond some of the myths around that, present some of the facts around that. And that fed into hopefully the broader debates about the Labour Party. Tides of History tries to take a bit of a kind of neutral stance, even though people assume it's very Blurite. Very, very happy to be critical of Blur at times on, on the things that they got wrong and positive about the things that Corbyn got right as well. Um, I think the, there was a, a book that came out quite recently that anyone who's interested in Labour mythology should read. It's called um, Dark Knight and Puppet Master, which looks at essentially the golden myths of um, the, the kind of labor mindset. And that goes from the Atlee mythologies through to contemporary Corbyn mythologies about, about the world and, and the way it's presented. So I think it is a field of specialism that is growing and one that people who want to understand the Labour Party will, will, will focus on in future. Mm. So you mentioned there the, um the book by uh, Chris Clark, um, The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master, um, which I think was published uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I have to say, I haven't um, read that, so I hadn't, hadn't seen that, but your, your write-up of it um, was quite reassuring to me because as, um, as I think you know, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was doing my um, lecture on labor history um, at King's, um, this idea of there being a mythology and sort of heroes and villains in Labour's history was one that I, I used to sort of shape that that lecture. Um, do you want to talk a bit about why you found um, sort of that argument in, in his book so convincing? Yeah, so in, in that book, he kind of divides it up into the three different uh, mythologies that have impact the Labour Party, the Dark Knight, the Puppet Master and the Golden Age. And I think the Golden Age was the one that I think is the most interesting of the three looking at Labour history. Um, the Dark Knight is probably this idea that politics is a battle between good and evil forces so that you're safe in the idea that your politics on the right side of history. And obviously this is something that I think is a criticism labelled at Labour Party activists, um, particularly in the Jeremy Corbyn era, because Jeremy Corbyn was seen as someone who was on the right side of history many times, uh, whether it was during the miners' strike, the steel strike, uh, the poll tax, uh, Iraq war, lots of various positions that were selected as him being on the right side of history, you know, obviously negating other issues, you know, Falklands, Northern Ireland, wherever you decide to take your view, where he might not have been seen as on the right side of history. So the, the idea of the, of the Dark Knight is that anyone who doesn't agree with your position is not just wrong, but kind of immoral. And that was a kind of argument that I used it in a, in a review of, of the book, um, that in the immediate aftermath of the Hartlepool by-election, for example, we saw lots of people kind of ridiculing those voters that had uh, switched from Labour to the Conservative and kind of said they don't actually want 
welfare of society. They actually want, you know, a terrible society was the quote I used. And it, there was actually a professor at the university who said that. So that was a kind of um, that, that mythology in action um, in real time. And I think, um, so the other, so, so, so that's one that I think is, is applied to the Labour Party. The second myth that um, Chris talked about was the idea that um, puppet master is the idea that there's, there's kind of forces beyond the electric's control that are shaping the way they view the world. So that even if you do vote conservative and you think you're a conservative, you're kind of being thrilled into doing so. And we see that a lot with um, debates about the Red Wall, where people say, well, don't they realise that they're just going to get, you know, worse lives because of what they've done? And, you know, there must be some ulterior motive behind them rigging the electorate. Um, and I think you see this a lot of like this idea of an ill-informed Labour voter, something that has cropped up, as you'll know, again and again in Labour history, whether it's, you know, in the 1980s or the 1950s, a lot of Labour activists can't understand why a working class person would vote conservative if it's not some sort of ulterior force kind of manipulating them into doing so um and so and so that's another mythology that he talks about and the third one which is the golden age which is the one that i think is one of the more interesting one is this idea that there was a golden age for the labor party for britain and it was the kind of atley years um just after the second world war and you see this in people like stephen fielding have written about this this idea of a kind of um, spirit of 45 and, and the, the Ken Loach mythology that socialism all, all came together in that post-war period and, and, and that there's a ground source support and that can be replicated again. Um, and I think there's, there's an argument, we can go into that maybe in a bit more detail, I think it's maybe a little bit simplistic to, to criticise um, that argument, but at the same time I think the, the book makes a really good um, example of how Britain is a lot better than it was in 1945 for left-wing people, you know, in terms of the way that women are treated, the way that gay people are treated, the way that um, all people are treated, that to actually want to reverse back to something like that, um, you know, is, is kind of absurd. And do you think that there's a sense in which that kind of um, harking back to a, a golden age um, is, in a sense, small c conservative that you know that the idea of labor as a progressive party um is sort of central to its identity and yet there is this very strong emphasis on on history and as you say this uh, mythology that's grown up and and the golden age sort of uh, encapsulates that in a way i mean jeremy corbyn um you know would describe himself as a as a progressive um would reject the notion of being a conservative of any sort but there is definitely something in that, isn't there? I think if you if you want to look at Corbyn in particular, I think he had this. There was a criticism about him that his ideas were kind of um, a throwback to the nineteen seventies and, and conservative in, in that sense. But actually, I do think that is a little bit of a simplistic argument when you apply it to the way in which he won that leadership contest in um, twenty. What would it have been twenty fifteen? Because he did look like the change candidate out of that selection because even though his ideas may have been a reversion to what Britain was like in the 1970s and 1960s, it looked modern dynamic to young people who hadn't heard of scrapping tuition fees, nationalisation, all the rest of it. So on the one hand, I would agree that, yes, there's something conservative about someone who hasn't really evolved their ideas a lot or their worldview, and it's kind of stuck around, even though there were lots of progressive new ideas in the Labour manifesto eventually, the kind of worldview that Corbyn had has stayed the same. It did somehow manage to project itself as something interesting, dynamic, and I think you should kind of be praised for that. And you talk a bit about um, Keir Starmer and his, um, his leadership um, pitch being very much based in sort of the minor strike and all of the sort of Labour mythology. There's been some comment recently as he's become perhaps more assertive in his modernizing credentials in the Labour Party and I certainly saw um, Owen Jones taking him to task just today as we record this um, saying you know he um, he didn't uh, during the leadership election give any suggestion that he wanted to uh, I can't remember what the phrase was now but uh, that was being briefed out that he wanted to sort of tear down the 
um, the last vestiges of, of Corbynism or whatever the phrase was, um, and, and making the point that you know he didn't run on that on that prospectus. He ran very much as a, um, a sort of uh, a, a safer version of Corbyn, almost as the as some people yeah. said, um, and certainly not um, someone who running on a kind of Blairite pitch of of, of being a, um, a sort of revolutionary modernizer of the party. Um, where do you stand on that? Do you do you think that you know this is something that's to be expected? I mean, we've we've seen sort of leadership elections of both parties in the past where um, the pitch they make to their own members is different to the pitch they make start making to the uh, electorate later on. Um, do you think that he's just become more self confident in in his sort of authenticity, um, or has there been some sort of shift there? It's a really interesting point, and I think it goes to the heart of like why Keir Starmer won and why he is going to face a lot of backlash from a certain part of the party. No one really knew much about Starmer's history within the Labour Party when he won that leadership election. And that was way that was definitely to his strength because he was elected as an MP, what, 2015? You didn't have any kind of... He had, he had the uh, role as Brexit Secretary, which was actually a kind of shadow Brexit Secretary, kind of beneficial one for him because a party that wanted a, a more remain stance he was able to kind of move towards that he wasn't in the kind of battles about welfare policy or home affairs or the economy if you look compare that to Tony Blair who had 14 years in the Labour Party before winning in a general election and people understood exactly where he was Keir Starmer could project himself whatever he wanted to be and that's a skill for a politician and that's why you know when he announced his leadership he was able to indulge in some of the the left's um romanticism for the past and he could talk about the miners strike the struggles of the 1980s how he stood shoulder to shoulder with people against thatcherism how he'd actually i think he said that he'd stood up against new labor over the iraq war and he even when he went to liverpool said he'll never do an interview for the sun because he knew well Maybe he'd never done an interview with the Sun before. No one was going to pick him up on that. He could say, I'm never going to do an interview for the Sun. And he knew that that would be good and very popular in that room. And he managed to win that selectorate. Um, as you say, it becomes a lot harder when you want to become prime minister and you know you're going to have to do interviews for the Sun newspaper, the Telegraph, the Express, all the things that he has done. I think... I think it's probably still too early to say, I mean, I say this today, I saw a briefing today that he's going to do some more speeches where he kind of repudiates Corbynism. But I think it's probably still too early to say that the whole policy platform will be completely different than it was under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, but at some point, of course, he's going to have to get to a position where he kind of puts a little bit more water between himself and what happened before, because obviously to win a general election, you need to be able to show that you weren't the, the party you were before because that hasn't succeeded. So I assume that is going to be part of his pro, pro, process going forward in the next year or so to, to put even more distance between them. And policy will probably be a big part of that. Mm. Yes. And the the sort of, as you said, the romanticising of, of the past um, is is obviously a key aspect of, of this mythology. But sort of if you're looking back in a sort of overly romantic way or um, treating a mythology, that's not really history. Um, you know, mythology is not history. It is it is myth. And so do you think that there is a lack of uh, sort of objective understanding of Labour's history amongst Labour politicians? It's clearly a device that they're able to, to use to kind of press the right buttons uh, for the membership. But do you think there's a problem, you know, with... For example, um, Jeremy Corbyn supporters citing the 45 government and Attlee uh, as sort of great heroes and sort of um, uh, as, as icons, when clearly we, we know from everything that we know about Attlee and Bevin and others, they'd be horrified by, you know, Corbyn and his, his foreign and defence policy, for example, um, if we look at the foundations of NATO and, and all of that. So, you know, there is a, a kind of um, distortion of, of history that is involved in something becoming a myth. Do, do you think there's a, a problem with a, a lack of, of, of genuine sort of appreciation of, of, of the actual history of the party? First of all, 
just before I just before we move on, Chris Clark in in the book talks about how if Jeremy Corbyn was around in the Atlee era, he definitely wouldn't have supported him, um, because you know the left historically, and and now there's a bit of a romanticism for uh, the Harold Wilson era and the Tony Blair era in some some cases where they said that at least that was authentic. So it kind of Labour mythology just shifts all the time um, depending on, on on where you're trying to advocate a certain position. But I think in terms of actually, I mean, there's ties of history could, has been accused of promoting certain mythologies. And I'm well aware that people who use it might be nostalgic about the past and it's conscious that you don't want to be saying it was better in the 1940s and it's better in the 1950s but you do as a political party have to try and use the past to your advantage I mean the conservatives are so good at using Churchill, Thatcher, whoever it may be at a certain time to their advantage. Labour are a lot a lot lot not as good at doing that um, and not to say that they're always the same. I mean, David Cameron, as you remember, didn't want to use Thatcher at all when, when he was trying to reform the party in the 2000s. It's only recently where it's become a bit more, you know, Liz Truss is trying to copy the style and, and all the rest of it, that it's become back in fashion again. So it's politics at the end of the day. You've got to use the mythology and history to your own ends at a certain time. Where I think lab like Labour do struggle with that is they do, and I wrote about this in the article that, that you mentioned, is they still often, and I'm probably accused of this as well, view everything through the lens of Thatcherism. And it's like, if you looked at Keir Starmer, if you looked at Rebecca Long-Bailey, I think Lisa Nandy might not have done it, but I know Rebecca Long-Bailey and Keir Starmer both talked about Thatcher in their opening pitch to the membership. Rebecca Long-Bailey said 1979 was the most important year in the history of Britain, that she was born that year. And it kicked off the Thatcher era and she was going to centre a campaign against reversing the whole of that. Um, and Boris Johnson was intent on finishing Thatcher's work. I remember in the 2019 election, there was a, a pretty dire campaign that Labour put out, which was just called The North Remembers. And it was basically people going to these mining towns that were on the brink of voting Conservative and saying, Remember what Thatcher did? She was horrible. She did this to you. You don't want Boris Johnson to finish it off. And I think there's no way that an 18-year-old who lives in Workington Lee, wherever all the all the kind of red wall seats that have shifted that used to be, you know, Featherstone that used to be mining towns, have any interest in Margaret Thatcher. They're interested in what you can do for them today in, in this in this world. So I think that's where Labour, their obsession with Thatcher particularly in the last election, just completely out of sync with the rest of the country. Yeah, and, and on the sort of understanding of, of it, I mean, you say that it's, it's something which you know, doesn't um, resonate with, with modern voters, but when, when they are looking for lessons from history, um, you know, oppositions, you know, when they fall from office or if you have a new leader coming in, they, they often want to look back at, you know, what's worked before. Um, and if your view of history is distorted in some way um, and you're, you're looking back at certain periods with rose-tinted spectacles and other periods as, as being ones where you don't want to emulate them, um, you're at risk of not actually getting the, the lessons that you need to learn. So um, do you think that that is a problem, that there is, um, is a lack of uh, sort of learning the, the right lessons from history? I think if we put it in, in Labour's context from, let's say if we go from 2010 onwards, you know, th four elections in a row, is it now? Um, or three? Uh, I, I'll lose track of count, but, you know, there was a, the, the, that 2010 was a historic defeat for the Labour Party in reality. It looked, it masked um, what was a pretty, which probably could have been a kind of year zero, 1997 was for the Conservatives you know, lost 97 seats, kind of the biggest collapse since 1931. I think they only got 8.6 million votes, which was on a par with 1983. But because the Conservatives could only govern as a hung parliament, I think Labour didn't do the, didn't properly learn the lessons of what had gone wrong in that election and identify what were going to be the big issues for the electorate. Obviously, Europe, immigration, welfare, all those issues, the economy, all those issues that came out, 
did Labour have the had Labour done enough in that Miliband period to fully understand why they were so hated by the end of the Brown years? I don't think they did. They kind of hoped that they could get back in at the first time, and it's always hard to do when you're a first time first time um, opposition. You know, as the Conservatives in '97 found out, it was it's it's a long slog back to back to power. But I think only only now Labour are properly learning some of the lessons that went wrong in that period and Keir Starmer's, you know, trying to um, get over them. One of them would probably be the relationship with the media needs to be a lot, lot better because it is a hostile environment. And if you can't get a fur hearing at any point, inevitably it's going to come back to bite you when it comes to an election. And to go back to some of these other um, concepts you're talking about, the, the first one of those, the Dark Knight one, um, mm. um, I, mean, I was particularly struck by that. This is the, the idea that there's, you know, politics is a battle between good and evil rather than mm. right and wrong um, in policy terms. And um, do you think that's something which historically has held the Labour Party back from being able to make the changes that are necessary for it to recover power um we talked in in, in uh the last episode we did about the power of um ideas um in in politics and, and to the labor party when we um, talked to patrick diamond but um but if we're looking at, at this some from the perspective of, of history um this is something where these very deep-rooted um prejudices i suppose um are difficult to overcome they're not about policy ideas they're not about um particular um policy agendas they are about sort of characterizing particular groups of voters but also you know politicians and your opponents so is there something about the fact the way that the labor party has this uh, tendency to go into for mythology that makes it more difficult for them to um to understand the alternative perspective that you know the idea that you can say to somebody you know i uh, i fundamentally disagree with the way you're looking to this but i understand that your motives are uh, are good um does the fact that they that they tend to fall into this idea of simply good and evil um make it more difficult to have that empathy that's necessary for you to understand why people might vote for the other party it's it's an interesting question i think historically and you'd obviously know more about the conservative side of it so i would be interested to see if this is a conservative thing in opposition as well but you know if you look at the 1950s there was a lot of problems labor had with this idea of the affluent society and there's been some good stuff written about how labor kind of assumed, and, and I remember Nybevan Nye made a speech at Party Comics where he talked of it kind of becoming a bit of a sick society where everyone was becoming more selfish and that it was Labour's duty to kind of reverse that and stop people from uh, being consumers, essentially, and, and you know, a higher purchase and, and the grammar schools and, and all that kind of thing that happened in the 1950s, which you can debate and say whether it was good or bad or the rest of it, but clearly Labour or some within Labour were arguing that this was a bad thing. Similarly, in the 1980s, the, you go back and look at some of the dates of debates about social housing, sell of council houses. Okay, now everyone you meet in the Labour Party says, right to buy was a terrible thing. But actually, so many working class people were able to get on the housing ladder result. There was a kind of snobbishness in Labour about people wanting to do that. And it kind of comes back to this idea that just because it was a that's right policy, it must be evil even though that policy in particular was one that Labour could have had. It was one that Labour, some, some of the Labour had argued for for a long time. So I think, yes, it also comes back to people within Labour. And again, it might be the same for the Conservatives. If you're in the heart of it, you politics is everything. It's all consuming. You're following it every day. You're seeing what the Tories are doing rising food banks, whatever you want to pick as a terrible thing that's happening in this country, which, you know, I obviously agree with, you then can't understand why someone could possibly vote Conservative, but they might not be following it as closely as you are. And it's not about you having to educate them. It's the fact that it might just not be on their radar. And you have to take people 
And I think Starmer's actually said in one of his first speeches that the fact that Labour's lost so many elections, it's not the electorate's fault. And that was a view, you know, for a long time in Labour Party, it wasn't really, you know, endorsed too much. It was often seen as, you know, um, we won the argument, but the conditions were against us. And it again goes back to what Chris is saying in the book, that you have to, if Labour wants to succeed, they have to move beyond the idea that there's good and evil, that the structural things impacting them and that there is actually things that they can do to win an argument that's in their own gift and that's good policies good people good good ways of communicating that can overcome some of these good and evil yeah putting people into good and evil boxes mm. yeah and i think that that i mean to my mind this is something which is it seems to me more acute within the sort of labor movement and within the labor party i think um it, it might just be an impressionistic thing but I, I i tend to um see less of that that sort of moral judgment on opponents being made by um by those on the on the right i mean i think that you know some people i'm sure might contest that but i think there is there's certainly a more of a sense of um of sort of moral certainty um on on the left perhaps um about particular positions that i don't i, I don't think is replicated um in the conservative party would that have been the case in the 2000s when there was kind of debates over the family and i don't know changes in so changes in society where there were debates from the conservative party about having to kind of roll back i'm thinking more like the Anne Widdicombe type mm -hmm. figures <laughs> they had a moral certainty about them that they were right and that labor and maybe labor weren't necessarily evil but what they were doing was wrong and that obviously changed and they adapted to get into power and that's what they had to do. But if they'd stuck down that route of thinking that everything New Labour was doing was wrong, would they have won in 2010? Would they still be winning? They wouldn't be, would they? No, and of course, you know, that that sort of wing of the Conservative Party and of the Conservative opposition at that time um, became increasingly um, sort of irrelevant to the, the project. You know, there yeah. was, you know, the, the Cameron project was very much um, explicitly trying to replicate the success of new labor yeah. um and you, you you can see that from some of the um interviews we've done with um some of the sort of cameron's um closest advisors and people who who very much were looking to new labor as what they had to uh to try and, and replicate the appeal that it had the sort of broad um broad uh um sort of church uh, the, of, of the labor coalition and sort of saying we need to appeal to the middle ground in the same way and be as um as progressive in that in that sort of way so i think yeah there is that um that difference between a kind of hardline sort of moral certainties which in the conservative party became much more of a fringe um whereas i think it, it seems to be much more mainstream in 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 the labor party that you do have senior figures in the party who will have no qualms about you know calling out the the um the motives of of um conservative politicians but there is something about about in that isn't there about how that practically translates into your strategy for opposition are you um arguing that um you know i understand why the you know the the party opposite or the government is trying to to do what it's trying to do but they're wrong and they haven't done it and all of those sorts of things that you can do on that level. There's a difference between that and fundamental implacable opposition to say nothing these people do can possibly be any good whatsoever. And the people yeah. who voted for them, uh, you know, haven't been uh, misled. They are also themselves wrong. There is a danger in that, isn't there? Because people who voted for that party have some kind of investment in that. And there must be something in there that they agree with. I think if you look at the, three most recent winners of elections taking a party from opposition into government you've got thatcher blair and cameron it's so small that, that these people have actually managed to do it they all essentially played pitch to um the opposition voters i mean it's often forgotten about margaret thatcher she did so much mythologizing of the labor party as in this used to be a great party i'm sure she even went out in speeches saying it used to be the party of Artley. It used to be the party of gateskill it's not anymore. Come with us. And she, I think I've, I've even seen a speech where she talks about there used to be a kind of 
beautiful socialism or a respectful socialism in this country. And it's mythologizing that labor idea and bringing those labor people with you and saying, that's what you think the Labour Party was. We understand why you believed you wanted to do it. It was a great thing. It's not that anymore. And the same what Tony Blair was doing in the 90s. They're just saying a lot of positive things about conservatism. And people say, that's because he's a Tory. But it's actually, you used to believe in strong families, strong welfare state, jobs for people, opportunities, because you're conservatives. They're not giving you that anymore. You know, look at the crime going up. Look at the amount of people on welfare. This isn't the society that you wanted when you vote conservative. Come and join us. And that's where the, the opportunity is for Keir Starmer, I suppose. Rather than saying all conservatives are evil, which he's never done, and I, I don't think that would ever be part of his strategy, he has to mythologise the conservative brand and say, you conservative people, you believe in this country, you believe in law and order, you believe in respect for people, respect for the Queen, whatever it is that you decide you're going to do as a strategy. Is Boris Johnson doing that? That's how he can win conservative voters over. That is a much, and hist history proves it, a much more useful strategy than basically saying that the other side is evil and you've got nothing to, to learn from them. But I don't think, again, as, 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 I don't think it was as crude as that. Maybe in the Corbyn era, it was a bit more that, and obviously Andrew Lorraine has said some things, but I don't think, and, but I think you could probably find the same quotes on the conservative side about Labour people and what they stand for. I think as a strategy, successful opposition leaders always got to try and get the other, other side onto mm -hmm. those. That's just politics, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, by definition, if you're in opposition, you know, you, you need to attract more voters and if and those are not going to come from your core vote. So is that that sort of reaching out um, beyond that core vote? But um, I'm interested in sort of your thoughts, you know, from, from all of the... Um, the research you've done into labor history about what you think the most um relevant lessons are for for Keir Starmer to take from history you know setting aside the mythology um from the actual history from the sort of the genuine experience of previous leaders and previous labor oppositions what do you think that if you were recommending um a sort of reading list for him to go and look at some labor history uh what are the articles um on tides of history or um or, or some of the blog posts that you would point him towards to look at to learn the secrets of, of how to how to recover power well i don't know i'm a little bit biased because i try and always put politics in a much wider context than um what you might call conventional political history so um, I, I take my um, historical style from people like um, Dom Sandbrook and, and Alwyn Turner and uh, Dave Kiniston where you try and you, you, politics is just one aspect of everything that's going on and if I was Keir Starmer I would be working so hard to try and show some show something about him that is beyond the politics whether that's and I, and I think Tony Blair obviously did this really well. David Cameron did it well. I wrote an article um, for The Critic a year ago about leaders' first years. And one of the great things that David Cameron did was go on the Jonathan Ross show, um, which I just think was just such a bizarre thing. And you couldn't imagine any other conservative leader in history doing this. But it just shows that there is something beyond politics. I think it is underestimated in Labour circles. One of the great things that Jeremy Corbyn did when he was successful was going to places like Glastonbury going on the one show and not talking about politics at all taking his chutney on was one and people kind of endeared towards it I think Starmer still got quite a lot to do in that regard I still think he's just as a total outsider you know I don't really have anything to do with his leadership or, or anything like that and advising or anything like that but you know he just comes across a little bit um, stunted in those positions and I think go back and look at the way that Blur approached those um, soft political plays and try and do that as much as possible. Mm. Yeah, because I think it was Blair who sort of started that chat show uh, kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 went, he went now. on the Des O'Connor show yeah. during his time, which was, uh, I think Alice Campbell has said, you know, people were saying this is a terrible idea, um, but it was actually a really uh, successful interview. As you say, it's, it, it's, it's reaching out beyond the sort of politically obsessed into a sort of soft interview. Uh, it's perhaps not always successful. I seem to remember no. 
Theresa May did uh, the one show as well during the 2017 general election. Well, you not, know, not that, entirely like, sure that was quite her. That, that, that's the thing, and and it's this question of can you can can we have a kind of Merkel style type figure in this country or someone who isn't very tel telegenic or very you know isn't very good in those situations like Neil Kinnock famously very good in those situations didn't translate into power and the same you know Boris Johnson is very good in those situations clearly can cut through is the next leader that comes along going to be the total opposite of that and doesn't do the frivolous stuff that might be the the um route that Keir Starmer is going to go down and and it might be you know this guy does this thing I'm the total opposite and obviously when we get big change in politics it's always a kind of you know revolution against what came before it and um, Tony Blair very much a very different figure to John Major for an example but I just think yeah there's still I still think if you went into a pub in this country and asked someone about Keir Starmer they wouldn't know much about him and I think that's still Yes, he's great at PMQs. He's great for the political audience who love watching Boris, you know, get done in PMQs and get a couple of million people watching it. But in the country, at, at, at rugby matches, at football matches, has he cut through yet? I think mm. he's got a lot to do and he's not got much time to do it. You, what, you, you know, the first year was tough for him because he couldn't do any of that. And that might be his Ian Duncan Smith 9-11 moment in 10 years' time where we go, he was never going to win because... He was hamstrung from day one by COVID. Alternatively, it could be the thing that historians say propelled him to power. That's that's the beauty of history. We still don't know. But um, I still think he needs to do more to, to announce himself on, on, on the national stage. Mm. I mean, I, I'm interested by the point you make about these sort of alternating um, leaders that you sort of react against what's gone before, because there's a clear pattern there. If we look at prime ministers... Um, you know, you can go back quite a long way by showing the sort of the difference in style um, mm. that you have, you know, Boris Johnson, very different style of prime minister and leader to Theresa May, who is that kind of, as you say, the, the more sort of sober and, um, and businesslike um, politician, <clears throat> whereas David Cameron, perhaps more of a sort of relaxed and um, an easygoing politician <clears throat> um, coming after Gordon Brown. Um, and so you do have this sort of recurring pattern is you go all Absolutely. the way back actually with prime ministers that each of them does seem to be um sort of alternating between this sort of charismatic and easygoing politician versus somebody a bit more sort of stilted and and, and sober and, and i think that's perhaps um being seen as as one of the strengths Keir Starmer might have uh, you know, if he is facing Boris Johnson at an election, difficulty, of course, comes if if he's not, um, and if there's an, an, another leader that comes afterwards of the, on the conservative side, who's a reversion against that, that that may be um, be difficult. But um, I mean, if you if you learn those sorts of lessons from history, you go back to um, to Harold Wilson, who you know was very much uh, attuned to the television age, for example, and uh, and being able to. Um, make use of sort of popular culture, the Beatles and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, there is quite a rich history of um, of all of that. Um, but if the person trying to do it is not authentic, that's that's quite difficult, isn't it? Well, I think this is something that actually, again, um, Corbyn is probably a little bit underrated for in that 2017 election. He was using like modern media techniques, social media. He became very memeable. He went very viral with things that were just his team were clipping up, and it it kind of created this sense of politics a little bit differently. And it it, it contrasts. Con, he looked very secure, pulling a pint and kind of cosplaying at that, you know, being a barman type thing. Where Theresa May would look terrible doing it, and I've seen Keir Starmer try and do it. It doesn't look as fun as Corbyn made it, and that that was where he had that brilliant election campaign, as in you know confounded expectations and the Glastonbury and all that, that looks very different than anything anyone's done and probably will ever do since. Didn't translate into victory, as we know. So he's going to go down, you know, in history as a loser. But the, 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 the next Labour leader that wins will have to define themselves against what has come before because the country will want change. And like you say, is he going to come to a position at the next election where... It's the economy, it's um, standards of living, and people look at Boris Johnson and think, you're not actually at the wheel here, we want someone who is. 
or is it going to be you know Rishi Sunak who may have created these problems we want some checks or is it going to be something completely different and it blows Keir Starmer's strategy out, out the water you'll know that Neil Kinnock's strategy from 1990 was kind of blown up the day that Thatcher went because it was all geared towards her and what she'd created and what she'd done with the poll tax in Europe and divisions in the party. The minute John Major comes in, very different style, very different approach, brings Michael Hasseltine in, changes the policy, harder to pin down. You know, straight away, I think Kinnett tried to call him a, a Thatcherette and it just, just didn't make any sense. Mm. You know, no one, no one was buying it. So the problem for Labour would be, how do they define the person who comes after Johnson if there is a person? How do they define him in the next election if, if it isn't as, as as bad as it is now? I mean, you'll you'll know from the conservative side. Are they likely to go into an election being ten points behind in the polls with the same leader? It's it's, it's unlikely, isn't it? Well, there's if the Johnson quote. Can't often... turn it round. It's gonna. He's gonna go. So it's like. There's the quote that's often used from Margaret Thatcher saying that you should always be a, a, a very long way behind midterm, and she's, yeah. she's she's supposed to have said to someone when they were complaining about being um, behind in the polls by um, uh, sort of six or seven points or something, and she said, that's not nearly enough. You need to be, you should be much further behind at this point. <laughs> yeah, you want to take the kicking, and, <laughs> and you know because people, you know, Blur had it, didn't he? With it, you know, he had a kicking midterm every time and it's so late and i don't think labor do i think labor know that there's going to be a, a comeback at some point whether it's through johnson or whether it's someone else i don't think there's going to be any triumphalism of we've won the election or we've won you know i think people will look at what like len mccluskey was doing after the 2017 election and be like we can't be in the position to do that again um but um, yeah, it's 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 a fa it's a fascinating one. I, it, what comes next, mm. and whether it is a total change or whether it's not, at the moment, Starmer does look very different than Johnson, and it is working to his advantage on this issue. Yeah, and of course, it's very difficult when you're facing a, a moving target in that way that you, yeah. you you're you're gearing all of your your campaign towards one particular leader and one particular narrative about uh, your opponents, and if that changes. Um, then, then you've lost that that edge, I suppose, which is is quite difficult. You know, had Gordon Brown changed in you know 2009, what would have what would the Tory strategy look like against a, a younger candidate? It it would have been a different election. You okay. could have had an election now. You could have <laughs> so, had an, ele an election between the two Davids, couldn't you? Yeah, that, that I think, yeah. I think that's a centrist dream, still, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the election that never happened. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think um, for uh, a lot of uh, centrists or, or otherwise, some of these uh, dreams of things that never, never happened is the basis of mythology, which brings us right back to where we started, which is very, very neat, almost as though we planned it. Um, thanks very much indeed um, for, for joining us on the podcast. And do um, give a, a, a plug. Um, what's the uh, what's the website address? It's very simple. Tidesofhistory.com. Um, you can see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of blogs on there from not just me, lots of other people, some King students as well. Um, great university. And also, uh, yeah, Twitter at Labour underscore history. And also I write for The Critic each month on lots of things, including rugby league, which might not be applicable to this audience. But there is a bit of politics in there as well. Brilliant. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Anthony Broxton there. Um, and as he says, uh, just to plug those again, uh, do follow at uh, labor underscore history on Twitter uh, or tidesofhistory.com. That's all we've got for you for this episode. Um, my thanks again to Anthony for joining us. Uh, my thanks to you for joining us as well. If you haven't already listened back to previous episodes, do make sure uh, you do so. We had a very interesting episode uh, some time ago on opposition in Russia, which has become all too poignant, and I think that that is worth listening to uh, as well. We will, I'm sure, return to that issue in the coming weeks and months. One final thing before we go, I'd like to give a mention to a project that we're running this summer. Uh, we're very pleased at the Centre for Opposition Studies to be announcing our first Opposition Studies Conference, a research conference that will be taking place in London on the 6th of July this year and we have issued a call for papers uh, asking people to put forward proposals for uh, presentations at that conference. If you would like to take part, if you are a student or uh, a seasoned academic, we are interested in uh, contributions from all levels 
of academia and the research community. So if you have an interest in studying opposition, uh, regardless of what level you're at, do please get in touch with us. Go to our website, oppositionstudies.net. That's the website of the Opposition Studies Network, which is a network that we've put together to connect political researchers looking at opposition. Go to oppositionstudies.net and click on Opposition Studies Conference, and you will then see the details of the call for papers. We're interested in uh, all aspects of opposition, whether that's the state of political opposition in the UK, uh, histor historical studies uh, of parties in opposition, uh, or the political science of opposition itself. Interested in all of those things, so if you have an interest in studying opposition, uh, which I assume you do if you're listening to this podcast, uh, then do please have a look at that, oppositionstudies.net, uh, or send us your proposal to research at oppositionstudies.org. That's the plug, uh, but do please get in touch. Uh, I may remind you of that in future episodes, but uh, we'd love to hear from you, and uh, we hope to have some special guests at that conference later on this year. But in the meantime, uh, make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. Uh, we have been a little bit irregular of late, um, but we will try to resume a uh, more regular schedule. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. In the meantime, do have a look back at some of those previous ones. And uh, until we meet again, thanks very much for listening. Look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. It's presented by me, Nigel Fletcher, and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.net forward slash oppositioncast. <laughs>